Section 23 of A Half Century of Conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 13, Part 1. Chapter 13, 1697 to 1750 louisiana the mississippi to be occupied english rivalry iberville bienville huguenots views of louis the fourteenth wives for the colony slaves la moth cadillac paternal government crozat's monopoly factions the mississippi company new orleans the bubble bursts indian wars the colony firmly established the two heads of new france at the beginning of the eighteenth century an event took place that was to have great influence on the future of french america this was the occupation by france of the mouth of the mississippi and the vindication of her claim to that vast and undefined regions which la salle had called louisiana La Salle's schemes had come to naught, but they were revived seven years after his death by his lieutenant, the gallant and faithful Henri de Tante, who urged the seizure of Louisiana for three reasons. First, as a base of attack upon Mexico. Secondly, as a depot for furs and lead ore of the interior. And thirdly, as the only means of preventing the English from becoming masters of the West. Three years later, the Sieur de Remonville, a friend of La Salle, proposed the formation of a company for the settlement of Louisiana, and called for immediate action as indispensable to anticipate the English. The English were, in fact, on the point of taking possession of the mouth of the Mississippi, and were prevented only by the prompt intervention of the rival nation. If they had succeeded, colonies would have grown up on the Gulf of Mexico after the type of those already planted along the Atlantic voluntary immigrants would have brought to a new home their old inheritance of english freedom would have ruled themselves by laws of their own making through magistrates of their own choice would have depended on their own efforts and not on government help in the invigorating consciousness that their destinies were in their own hands and that they themselves and not others were to gather the fruits of their toils out of conditions like these would have sprung communities not brilliant but healthy orderly, well-rooted in the soil, and of hardy and vigorous growth. But the principles of absolutism, and not those of a regulated liberty, were to rule in Louisiana. The new French colony was to be the child of the crown. Cargoes of emigrants, willing or unwilling, were to be shipped by authority to the fever-stricken banks of the Mississippi. Cargoes made up in part of those whom fortune and their own defects had sunk to dependence to whom labor was strange and odious but who dreamed of gold mines and pearl fisheries and wealth to be won in the new world and spent in the old who wore the shackles of a paternal despotism which they were told to regard as of divine institution who were at the mercy of military rulers set over them by the king and agreeing in nothing except in enforcing the mandates of arbitrary power and the withering maxim that the labor of the colonists was due not to himself but to his masters it remains to trace briefly the results of such conditions 
the before-mentioned scheme of raymondville for settling the mississippi country had no result in the next year the gallant le moyne de iberville who had been called the cid or more fitly the jean bart of canada offered to carry out the schemes of la salle and plant a colony in louisiana one thing had become clear france must act at once or lose the mississippi already there was a movement in london to seize upon it under a grant of two noblemen iberville's offer was accepted and he was ordered to build a fort at the mouth of the great river and leave a garrison to hold it he sailed with two frigates the Badine and the marin and towards the end of january sixteen ninety nine reached pensacola here he found two spanish ships which would not let him enter the harbor spain no less than england was bent on making good her claim to the mississippi and the gulf of mexico and the two ships had come from vera cruz on this errand three hundred men had been landed and a stockade fort was already built iberville left the spaniards undisturbed and unchallenged and felt his way westward along the coasts of alabama and mississippi exploring and sounding as he went at the beginning of march his boats were caught in a strong muddy current of fresh water and he saw that he had reached the object of his search the fatal river of the unfortunate la salle he entered it and camped on the night of the third twelve leagues above its mouth climbed a solitary tree and could see nothing but broad flats of bushes and canebrakes still pushing upward against the current he reached in eleven days a village of the bayagula indians where he found the chief attired in a blue capote which was probably put on in honor of the white strangers and which as the wearer declared had been given him by henri de tante on his descent of the mississippi in search of la salle thirteen years before young le moyne de benville who accompanied his brother iberville in a canoe brought him some time after a letter from tonti which the writer had left in the hands of another chief to be delivered to la salle in case of his arrival and which bienville had bought for a hatchet iberville welcomed it as convincing proof that the river he had entered was in truth the mississippi after pushing upstream till the twenty-fourth he returned to the ships by the way of lakes morapa and pontchartrain iberville now repaired to the harbor of biloxi on the coast of the present state of mississippi here he built a small stockade fort where he left eighty men under the sieur de savola to hold the country for louis the fourteenth this done he sailed for france thus the first foundations of louisiana were laid in mississippi bienville whom his brother had left at biloxi as second in command was sent by sauvelet on an exploring expedition up the mississippi with five men in two canoes at the bend of the river now called english turn tour all anglais below the site of new orleans he found an english corvette of ten guns having as passengers a number of french protestant families taken on board from the carolinas with the intention of settling on the mississippi the commander, Captain Lewis Bank, declared that his vessel was one of three sent from London by a company formed jointly of Englishmen and Huguenot refugees for the purpose of founding a colony. Though not quite sure that they were upon the Mississippi, they were on their way up the stream to join a party of Englishmen, said to be among the Chickasaws, with whom they were trading for Indian slaves. Bienville assured Bank that he was not upon the Mississippi but on another river belonging to king louis who had a strong fort there and several settlements the two credulous englishmen said the french writer believed these inventions and turned back 
First, however, a French engineer in the service of Bank contrived to have an interview with Bienville, and gave him a petition to the King of France, signed by four hundred Huguenots who had taken refuge in the Carolinas after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. The petitioners begged that they might have leave to settle in Louisiana, with liberty of conscience under the French crown. In due time they got their answer. The king replied, through the minister, Pontchartrain, that he had not expelled heretics from France in order that they should set up a republic in America. Thus, by the bigotry that had been the bane of Canada, and of France herself, Louis the Fourteenth threw away the opportunity of establishing a firm and healthy colony at the mouth of the Mississippi. So threatening was the danger that England would seize the country, that Iberville had scarcely landed in France when he was sent back with a reinforcement. The colonial views of the king may be gathered from his instructions to his officer. Iberville was told to seek out diligently the best places for establishing pearl fisheries, though it was admitted that the pearls of Louisiana were uncommonly bad. He was also to catch bison calves, make a fence park to hold them, and tame them for the sake of their wool, which was reputed to be of value for various fabrics. Above all, he was to look for mines, the finding of which the document declares to be la grande affaire. On the 8th of January, Iberville reached Biloxi, and soon after went up the Mississippi to that remarkable tribe of sun-worshippers, the Natchez, whose villages were on and near the site of the city that now bears their name. Some thirty miles above, he found a kindred tribe, the Tayensas, whose temple took fire during his visit, when, to his horror, he saw five living infants thrown into the flames by their mothers to appease the angry spirits. Retracing his course, he built a wooden redoubt near one of the mouths of the Mississippi to keep out the dreaded English. In the next year, he made a third voyage, and ordered the feeble establishment at Biloxi to be moved to the Bay of Mobile. This drew a protest from the Spaniards, who rested their claims to the country on the famous bull of Pope Alexander the Sixth. The question was referred to the two crowns. Louis the Fourteenth, a staunch champion of the papacy when his duties as Catholic did not clash with his interests as king, refused submission to the bull, insisted that the Louisiana country was his, and declared that he would hold fast to it because he was bound, as a son of Holy Church, convert the Indians and keep out the English heretics. Spain was then at peace with France, and her new king, the Duc d'Anjou, grandson of Louis the Fourteenth, needed the support of his powerful kinsmen. Hence his remonstrance against French encroachment was of the mildest. Besides Biloxi and Mobile Bay, the French formed a third establishment at Dauphin Island. The Mississippi itself, which may be called the vital organ of the colony, was thus far neglected being occupied by no settlement and guarded only by a redoubt near one of its mouths. Of the emigrants set out by the court to the new land of promise, the most valuable by far were a number of Canadians who had served under Iberville at Hudson Bay. The rest were largely of a sort who are described by that officer as beggars sent out to enrich themselves, and who expected the government to feed them while they looked for pearls and gold mines. The paternal providence of Versailles, mindful of their needs, sent them, in 1704, a gift of twenty marriageable girls, described as nurtured in virtue and piety, and accustomed to work. Twenty-three more came in the next year from the same benignant source, besides seventy-five soldiers, five priests, and two nuns. Food, however, was not sent in proportion to the consumers, and as no crops were raised in Louisiana, famine and pestilence followed, 
till the starving colonists were forced to live on shellfish picked up along the shores disorder and discord filled the land of promise nicolas de la salle the commissaire odonatar an official answering to the canadian intendant wrote to the minister Ponchatrain that iberville and his brothers bienville and chateauguay were thieves and knaves lavant cure of mobile joined in the cry against bienville and stirred soldiers and settlers to disaffection but the bitterest accuser of that truly valuable officer was the worthy matron who held the unenviable post of the directress of the king's girls that is the young women sent out as wives for the colonists it seems that she had matrimonial views for herself as well as for her charge and she wrote to Pontchartrain that major boisbriant commander of the garrison would certainly have married her if bienville had not interfered and dissuaded him it is clear she adds that monsieur de bienville has not the qualities necessary for governing the colony bienville was now chief in authority charges of peculation and other offences poured in against him and at last though nothing was proved one dami was sent to succeed him with orders to send him home a prisoner if on examination the accusations should prove to be true dami died on the voyage d'artiguet the new intendant proceeded to make the inquiry but refused to tell bienville the nature of the charges against him saying that he had orders not to do so nevertheless when he had finished his investigation he reported to the minister that the accused was innocent on which nicolas de la salle whom he had supplanted as intendant wrote to Pontchartrain that d'artiguet had deceived him being no better than bienville himself la salle further declared that barreau the surgeon of the colony was an ignoramus and that he had made money by selling the medicine supplied by the king to cure his louisianan subjects such were the transatlantic workings of the paternalism of versailles bienville who had been permitted to resume his authority paints the state of the colony to his masters and tells them that the inhabitants are dying of hunger not all however for he mentions a few exceptional cases of prosperity these were certain thrifty colonists from rochelle who says bienville had grown rich by keeping dram shops and now wanted to go back to france but he has set a watch over them thinking it just that they should be forced to stay in the colony this was to add the bars of a prison to the other attractions of the new home as the colonists would not work there was an attempt to make indian slaves work for them but as these continually ran off bienville proposed to open a barter with the french west indies giving three red slaves for two black ones an exchange which he thought would be mutually advantageous since the indians being upon islands could no longer escape the court disapproved the plan on the ground that the west indians would give only their worst negroes in exchange and that the only way to get good ones was to fetch them from guinea complaints against bienville were renewed till the court sent out the moth cadillac to succeed him with orders to examine the charges against his predecessor whom it was his interest to condemn in order to keep the governorship in his new post cadillac displayed all his old faults began by denouncing the country in unmeasured terms and wrote in his usual sarcastic vein to the colonial minister i have seen the garden on dauphin island which had been described to me as a terrestrial paradise i saw there three seedling pear trees three seedling apple trees a little plum tree about three feet high with seven bad plums on it 
a vine some thirty feet long with nine bunches of grapes some of them withered or rotten and some partly ripe about forty plants of french melons and a few pumpkins this is monsieur d'artiguet's terrestrial paradise monsieur de raymondville's pomona and monsieur de mandeville's fortunate islands their stories are mere fables then he slanders the soil which he declares will produce neither grain nor vegetables the artiguet no longer fancying himself in eden draws a dismal picture of the state of the colony there are he writes only ten or twelve families who cultivate the soil the inhabitants naturally lazy are ruined by the extravagance of their wives it is necessary to send out girls and laboring men i am convinced that we shall easily discover mines when persons are sent us who understand that business the colonists felt no confidence in the future of louisiana the king was its sole support and if as was likely enough he should tire of it their case would be deplorable when bienville ruled over them they had used him as their scapegoat but that which made the colony languish was not he but the vicious system it was his business to enforce the royal edicts and arbitrary commands that took the place of law proceeded from masters thousands of miles away who knew nothing of the country could not understand its needs and scarcely tried to do so in seventeen eleven though the mischievous phantoms of gold and silver mines still haunted the colony we find it reported that people were beginning to work and were planting tobacco the king however was losing patience with a dependency that cost him endless expense and trouble and brought little or nothing in return and this at a time when he had a costly and disastrous war on his hands and was in no mood to bear supernumerary burdens the plan of giving over a colony to a merchant or a company of merchants was not new it had been tried in other french colonies with disastrous effect yet it was now tried again louisiana was farmed out for fifteen years to antoine crozat a wealthy man of business the countries made over to him extended from the british colonies on the east to new mexico on the west and the rio del norte on the south including the entire region watered by the mississippi the missouri the ohio and their tributaries as far north as the illinois in comparison with this immense domain which was all included under the name of louisiana the present state so called is but a small patch on the american map to crozat was granted a monopoly of the trade wholesale and retail domestic and foreign of all these countries besides the product of all mines after deducting one-fourth reserve for the king he was empowered to send one vessel a year to guinea for a cargo of slaves the king was to pay the governor and other crown officers and during the first nine years the troops also though after that time crozat was to maintain them till the end of his term in consideration of these and other privileges the grantee was bound to send to louisiana a specified number of settlers every year his charter provided that the royal edicts and the coutume de paris should be the law of the colony to be administered by a council appointed by the king End of section 23